growing in Christ and reaching out to the world. That's our church's vision. And you can see that the Lord is blessing in a lot of different ways as our community is part of that world that we want to reach out to. And it goes up into Massachusetts and to Peru and to Uganda a little bit later on. Um, a lot of different places represented by our missionaries now. As we gathered in the park on these Sunday nights, one of the things that we've been trying to do primarily is to get to know Jesus. Some of us know Jesus very well and have known him for a long, long time. Some of us are getting to know him, and some of us know about him but don't really know him. And our goal is to make sure that everybody gets to know more about Jesus so that we can know him in a better way. We've talked about Jesus being fully God. We've talked about Jesus being fully man. In fact, we talked about Jesus being fully God in a couple of different ways. In one case, trying to eliminate some of the middle ground that people always try to come to and say, Jesus was a great person, and they think we're going to feel good about that. But Jesus was not a great person if he wasn't God, because Jesus would have misrepresented himself. And so we talked about the trilemma. We talked about part of the work of Jesus, the principal work of being a substitute for us. He took our sins on himself. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, fully God and man, all at the same time. Jesus dying as our substitute, and none of that would make any difference at all to any of us if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. If Jesus was buried in a tomb and stayed there, and the remains were still there, nothing else would matter. And in fact, the Bible tells us we would have all people been most miserable because our faith would have been completely swept out from under us. Our faith is based on the resurrection. And in fact, I quoted Josh McDowell a couple of times last week. I'm going to be quoting from him a lot this week. Uh, I'm indebted to him even for the title of where I am tonight, The Resurrection Hoax or History. And he makes a couple of statements, and I'd like to share them at the outset. Christianity rises or falls on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus is bodily, literal, real, absolute, physical. You can keep adding words together, but it is absolutely the genuine thing. Jesus physically rose from the dead. His body was dead. It was entombed. Three days later, he was out of there and very much alive. Josh McDowell says, after spending more than 700 hours studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. He started out as an agnostic. He started out to try to disprove everything there was about the Bible and Jesus and he kept getting drawn further and further and further in. Truth has a way of doing that, and it did that to him. He points out that all but four of the major world religions are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities, that would be Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam, rather than a philosophical system, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. Now think about that for just a moment. Only one claims an empty tomb, claims a Savior who is still alive. Do you realize there's more evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any historical event of antiquity? And we're talking about evidence. Sometimes people will say, well, can we use the scientific method to prove the resurrection? 
well, we can't use the scientific method because the scientific method says that in order to prove something or not to prove it, it has to be repeatable and observable. Can you repeat the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? Obviously not. Can you observe it? No, we can't go back in time. So we can't use the scientific method. What we use instead is the legal historical method. And that involves evidence. And we keep accumulating and piling evidence onto this fact of the resurrection. And when you examine the evidence as a thinking person, you would have to conclude that there is a serious amount of evidence for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you add everything together, you've got to come to a conclusion that this resurrection is not a fairy tale. This is something that actually happened Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we need evidence for the resurrection? Because there are those who have tried from the very beginning to disprove the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't take long for the false stories to begin circulating. If you have a Bible and you'd like to uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, the first attempt to disprove the resurrection can be called, as it's sometimes referred to, as the theft theory. Here's how it reads in Matthew. It tells about the fact that there are those who believe that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body while the Roman guards slept. And you know what? That's a false story of that, and they even knew it was false, but they couldn't come up with anything better because they couldn't explain what happened to Jesus' body. Here's how it reads in Matthew. Chapter 28, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now let me stop there for just a moment. Doesn't that sound ridiculous already? How do they know what happened when they were asleep? And if they weren't asleep, if they were awake, how did this timid group of disciples came and steal Jesus' body without them doing something about it? Which is the very purpose why they were there, because it had been said that Jesus would rise from the dead in three days. They were there for the very reason to prevent that. But tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Why do we need evidence for the resurrection? Because there are false stories that people have been concocting ever since that took place. There's another false story. Popularly, it came to be known as the swoon theory. It was popular with the 18th century rationalists. It had been popular on college campuses at, at one time through various other religious groups. They also needed a way to explain what happened to Jesus, and so they came up with the swoon theory. Swoon theory being the, what they say that Jesus didn't actually die. They say somehow the coolness of the tomb refreshed him. They weren't talking about the coldness and the dampness of the tomb. They're talking about the coolness, like this is a great big thing, a, a really nice thing to be entombed. But the Lord Jesus, they say, was able to come out of the tomb and somehow convince everyone that he had risen from the dead. 
and somehow convince everyone that this battered body that must have just been flickering with the, the, the least amount of life possible, that he came back from the dead and then came around and convinced everybody that he wasn't a medical mishap, but he was a risen Savior, all of that would have taken place if the swoon theory was something that was correct. There were others, and I won't even mention them, but I want you to keep them in mind because we're going to give some evidence against all of these false theories in the next few moments. Some of the other theories, the unknown tomb and the wrong tomb theories. They basically were saying that uh, everybody went to the wrong tomb. That's why they didn't find Jesus there. And that discounts Joseph of Arimathea buying that tomb, cutting that tomb out, taking Jesus there, not knowing where his own tomb was, the women witnessing that, not knowing where the tomb was to come back again. And uh, so many other things about those theories, I don't even really want to dignify them with a lot of time. Other theories were the legend theory, the spiritual resurrection theory, that Jesus didn't bodily, physically rise from the dead, but it was a spiritual thing. And he's revived all of us when we think about the example of the life that he lived. And that's the resurrection that some people will, will determine. The hallucination theory. That's a great one because... Um, 500 people and more than 500 would have had to have hallucinated the same thing at the same time. You know, hallucinations are very personal. Uh, they aren't contagious. You have one, somebody else has one, um, maybe in a lifetime or two. But in this case, they all would have had to have had that at one time, and that certainly didn't happen. There's another variation of the theft theory that the authorities are the ones who stole Jesus' body. The authorities came and stole his body for whatever reason Nobody can come up with, and why, when they wanted to stamp out this sect of Christianity that resulted, why didn't they just produce the body and tell them what happened to it, and then that would be the end of this huge mess that they were trying to quell on their own. And then there was another theory that was actually made into a book. It was called The Passover Plot, a book by Hugh Schoenfield. He wrote it in 1965. It was very, very widely circulated. They even made a movie of it in 1976. It was nominated for an Oscar for the best costume design. And I would think maybe even for the best imagination. Uh, because let me just tell you real quickly to see what we're up against. And we're not up against something that makes a whole lot of sense. But in his book, he said that Jesus really believed that he was the Messiah. And he carefully orchestrated this whole apparition of the resurrection. By the way, Joseph of Arimathea was in on it, as was John the Apostle. Jesus, he says, knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. He ordered his life to make the Old Testament prophecies fit. Now, that takes a lot more faith than to believe uh, Almighty God could raise his son from the dead. Can you imagine orchestrating the events of your life so that they lined up with prophecy? That means that Jesus determined where he would be born. That means he determined when he would be born, because prophecy tells us that it would be 483 years after the edict to rebuild the wall during Nehemiah's time. Jesus orchestrated somehow all of that pre-womb in the womb, and then orchestrated all the events of his life. The apostles were on a need-to-know basis, so they didn't know what he was doing when he took a drug on the cross that made it appear as if he had died. And so when he said, I thirst, there was another party who was complicit to this, who came up and gave him this drug so that Jesus was there on the cross looking like he was dead, 
But the whole thing was ruined. You know what ruined it? The spear in the side. He hadn't counted on that. And so Jesus did actually die according to this book. He died a little bit later, and they took his body, and they buried it in a place where nobody could ever see it. That's the Passover plot. So with these in mind, let me share with you some evidence that blows out of the water every one of these and every other theory and every other made-up story that tries to argue against the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Please forgive me. Some of you know this, that I, I wanted to go to law school at one time. I was all set to go to law school. So evidence is something that I really enjoy. And I'd like to share with you six exhibits. If we were in a court of law right now, um, here would be exhibit A. Exhibit A, that I would want to be sure was marked for evidence, and I would make sure that the judge would, would do that, would be what is popularly called the stone. Now, let's not think stone. When I think of stone, I think of something I can pull out of my pocket and throw at you. This was, in the Greek language, the word megas. It was a boulder. It was a huge rock. And in fact, according to Mark 16, verse 4, it says it was very large. And that's the translation of megas. Too large for three women to think they had a shot at all of moving that I'm going to call it stone because it's popularly called that, to, to move that stone away from the, at the beginning of the tomb. There's an ancient manuscript in the Cambridge Library in England that describes this stone as something that 20 men could not roll away. One time on these very grounds years ago, we had a uh, sunrise service. We've had a lot of sunrise services, but on this particular occasion, we had Dan Hagman dressed up like a rock, and he was interviewed. And the rock was this rock, and he was interviewed, and he had a whole lot of really nice things to tell us. Among them were this, and he said this of himself because he was pretty proud about his size. According to two engineering professors who visited the area of the tomb, a stone the size of one to fill the usual opening of a tomb four and a half feet to five feet high, which was normal, would have to weigh one and a half to two tons. And we're led to believe that if some of these stories are true, that Jesus, in the condition he must have been in after the flogging, after being on the cross, after having been placed in there, if he had swooned and come out of the tomb or something along that line, he would himself push aside one and a half to two tons of rock that was there in front of that tomb. That stone had been held in place on the groove or the stone trench that sloped down on the front of the tomb. There was a wedge that was pulled away, and when that was pulled away, gravity did the work, and the stone slid down to the entrance of the tomb. Gravity was a friend there, but gravity was not present when it was time, and it was not a friend when it was time to remove that stone. Gravity would have been working against that. In Mark 16.4, and forgive me, I'm going to get a little technical right now, but the judge is very technical, and I want to make sure he hears this. In Mark 16.4, Mark adds a small preposition to the root word for rolling the stone in place to describe the removal of the stone as it would be rolled upward, up the slope or incline. The ESV renders that the stone had been rolled back. Luke added a different preposition. John used a different word, but both of them indicated the stone was rolled away or even picked up and carried away. It was not at the opening of the tomb. It was up, up, and away. That's exhibit A. That stone, that rock, that magus 
speaks volumes against the theories that people give. Because if you put that into the equation, it makes no sense. Exhibit B. I'm going to call it a death certificate, although there wasn't a certificate necessarily, but it was that death could be certified. Jesus actually died. Careful examination of the facts makes it easy to prove. In addition to the facts that we see recorded by four different gospel writers, we have the testimony of Nicodemus, we've got the soldiers, we've got the centurion, we've got Joseph of Arimathea. He incidentally wrapped Jesus' body in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. You're pretty up close to a body when that happens. You can pretty well tell whether that body is showing any signs of life when you're wrapping 75 pounds around him. Strong forensic case could be made from the fact that when that spear was thrust in Jesus' side, you know what came out. What came out? Water and blood, a sign of death. And I could give a long explanation, and some articles have been written about that that are very, very plain in what they tell us. But death had already taken place. No such thing as the possibility of a swoon theory. Exhibit C, the disciples... These are the ones who allegedly defied the Roman guard and stole Jesus' body from the tomb, somehow removing that stone without awakening the soldiers, somehow mustering up the courage to do that. I call this Exhibit C because the disciples, when we look at them, we've got a before and an after picture that is very evidential in what's going on. Here's what they were like before. Mark chapter 14, it says, And they all left him and fled. As soon as Jesus was arrested, they deserted Jesus. It was prophesied that that would happen, and it did. And a young man, it says, followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Probably not an apostle, probably John Mark, from the best we can determine. Nonetheless, a follower of Jesus one like the rest of them who decided that this is a time for us to make ourselves scarce. John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Resurrection Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Here was this group of people who were all saying, not just Peter, they were all saying, we'll die for you. Here they were huddled in an upper room for fear that the next step that they heard out in the hallway might be the enemies coming for them. That's before. That's before they saw the risen Jesus. Here's the after picture. Luke 24, right after the ascension. This is all the way at the end of Luke 24. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now look at them. Continually in the temple praising God, worshiping God because of what happened to Jesus. What were they thinking? Who was in the temple? The very people that they were afraid of a short time before. The very same people that they locked themselves in an upper room, deserted Jesus, having fled, and very, very frightened of the enemy. The disciples were not afraid of the religious leaders anymore. Why? because they were convinced by a living Savior who showed himself alive to them. And he showed himself alive, the Scriptures tell us, by many infallible proofs. In fact, here's what it says in Acts 1-3. And I'm reading this from the New International Version. 
after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Many convincing proofs. The ESV doesn't include the word convincing, but if you study that word and you look that up, it is described as something that is a sure sign, a positive proof. It gives indubitable evidence. If you want to impress your friends, if they say something, just say indubitably. It means without a doubt, and you can impress them. Strong's Concordance defines the word here as criterion of certainty, infallible proof. That's what Jesus did for 40 days to the people who could tell easier than anybody on the planet whether he was an imposter or not. These men were convinced because we understand they went from there to die martyrs' deaths, every one of them, proclaiming Jesus as Savior. Possibly John didn't die as a martyr. We're not sure how he was finally killed. He was exiled for a time to the island of Patmos. Legends say he was boiled in oil and he escaped from that All the other apostles died cruel, terrifying deaths, yet none of that was intimidating to them in the face of Christ's demonstration of victory over death. Among the apostles, we read about an upside-down crucifixion, beheading, burned, thrown to animals. Where does somebody get this kind of courage? Is it to defend a lie? For what purpose would somebody die in one of those cruel ways if he knew that Jesus was a fake? He knew that Jesus was an imposter. Where do they get that kind of courage? Is it to defend a lie or is it because they've seen the risen Savior? And you know the answer to that. There's a fourth exhibit. I call this the safeguards. The first of them is the Roman guard. The Roman guard and This is probably one of the smallest people in the Bible because it says this is the Roman guard who slept on his watch. There are a number of really short people in the scripture. Zacchaeus, we all know, was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He was, and then there's Nehemiah. He wasn't very big, just up to somebody's knees. And then Rachel carried her pitcher to the well. He couldn't have been very big either. But this is the Roman guard. No, actually, it's more than one guard. But the Roman guards were reputed to be practically invincible. Roman guards did not fall asleep on the job. The Roman guard unit was probably at this time for this occasion a 4 to 16 man security force. Each man was armed to the teeth, specially trained to be part of the world's greatest fighting machine. Each one of these guards was specially trained to be able to protect six feet of ground. So imagine 16 men in a square, four on each side, guarding and protecting 36 yards against an entire battalion, and they were able to hold that, according to tradition. Normally, four guards at least were awake and alert. Twelve formed a semicircle in front of what needed to be protected. This is the Roman guard we're supposed to believe slept on their watch and then ran away in fear of Jesus' timid disciples. Do you see why I say none of this makes sense? None of these other explanations has an ounce of logic behind it. If they had done that, 
if the disciples had managed somehow to work their way silently through these Roman guards, steal the body of Jesus from behind that huge stone, and get out of there clean without awakening any of one, if that had happened, the punishment to those guards would have been swift and severe. One way a guard was put to death was by stripping him of his clothes, then burning him alive in a fire started by his own clothes. That was if one guard would sleep on the job. Can you imagine all 16 of them asleep at the same time? Roman soldiers simply didn't sleep on duty, and especially not 16 at once. There's another part of Exhibit D in the safeguards, not just the Roman guard, but also the Roman seal. You should have seen it, probably an attack seal. Southern elephant seals go up to 8,500 pounds, and they bounce balls on the... I'm sorry, it's not that kind of a seal. Uh, It's the Roman seal. Roman seal, simply this. After they inspected the tomb to make sure there was still a body there, they would not have done this just because somebody said, go up there and, and, and put, put your seal on that tomb. But after they inspected it to make sure there was a body in there, a cord was stretched across the rock and it was fastened at either end with some type of sealing clay. That's why it was called the seal. Then the clay was stamped with the official signet of the Roman governor. Anyone trying to move the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and brought upon himself not the wrath of an animal, not a huge seal, but the wrath of the entire Roman Empire, the entire Roman government. Not only did they not mess with guards, but they didn't want to mess with Rome either. Exhibit E, the grave clothes. Here's how they're described. In the form of a body, slightly caved in and empty like a leftover caterpillar's cocoon. When John saw this, he believed. The empty tomb did not seem to impress him as much as the undisturbed grave clothes did. Can you imagine the disciples again tiptoeing past the guards, removing this huge stone from in front of the the tomb itself, then going in there and somehow taking Jesus out of these grave clothes, leaving the grave clothes like a cocoon, and then taking the body of Jesus away from there. It doesn't make any possible sense. Final exhibit, exhibit F, the empty tomb. Both Jewish and Roman sources acknowledged an empty tomb. This is the strongest evidence possible from the detractors, from the enemies. They acknowledged an empty tomb. They just had to come up with an explanation how it got empty. They never denied that it was empty, They said, say that his disciples stole the body, but they never denied that the tomb was empty itself. And again, that type of positive endorsement from a hostile source is considered the strongest kind of historical evidence. The authorities in Jerusalem bribed the guards to say the disciples stole Jesus' body. Special representatives were sent throughout the Mediterranean world to perpetuate this kind of idea. Why would any of this be necessary if there were a body? in the tomb. We have no choice but to agree with the Roman, the Jewish, and the Christian assessment that the tomb was empty, and that's a very important exhibit. Tom Anderson, I'll give you his credentials, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association, co-author of the Basic Advocacy Manual of Association of Trial Lawyers of America, says this, let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. 
with an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? Listen, I saw the tomb. It was not empty. Look, I was there. Christ did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, I saw Christ's body. The silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection. Those are a few exhibits, and I'm going to be very brief with the next part. Now we're going to call eyewitnesses. We're going to call eyewitnesses whose testimony is very, very important. The Bible tells us a lot of people saw the resurrected Jesus. Nobody says they saw a dead body, but more than 500 people even on one occasion saw the resurrected Jesus. More than 500 eyewitnesses. When Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, most of those eyewitnesses were still around. They were prepared to testify. They could easily have been questioned. They could easily have been discredited, but they never were. At least 13 recorded post-resurrection appearances. And I say recorded because there may have been many, many others. Within 40 days, Jesus was there with the people that knew him the best. Mary Magdalene was the first. The other women were next. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know that story. One of them is named Cleopas. Anybody could have pinned him down. He would have been on the news. He would have been interviewed. Everybody would have been after him. The 11 apostles on one occasion, Peter by himself on another occasion, the 10, obviously without Judas and without Thomas on another occasion, then the 11 with Thomas joining them, the seven apostles at the Sea of Galilee, 500 brothers at least on one occasion, 11 disciples in Galilee, James had an appearance that's referred to in 1 Corinthians 15. At the time of Jesus' ascension, there was another crowd there to Paul at his conversion. A total of at least 500 people and at least 557 individual reunions that are recorded. Think of how that would stand up in a court of law. We've got all of our exhibits, and now we say to the judge, I want to call my witnesses now, and I call my first witness, and that witness says, yes, I saw the risen Lord Jesus, and I call a second witness, and then a third one, and then a fourth one. When do you think he would throw up his hands and say, hey, that's enough? One or two witnesses verify a story. He would get very ticked off if we called 10, if we called 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. It would never happen because it would already have been established. And you know what? There's much more circumstantial evidence, and I won't even go into that. Sunday worship. Imagine these Jewish followers of the Lord Jesus who now all of a sudden change their day of worship from the Sabbath, from Saturday to Sunday. That would have been unthinkable unless there was a a tremendous reason for that, and there was, because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of the church at that time, circumstantial evidence, baptism, identifying in the death and the burial, and then coming out of the water, identifying in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing with communion, that we do this and we remember him until he comes. He can't come if he's in a tomb. He can't come if he's dead. He can't come if he hasn't been raised. There's evidence all over the Scriptures of a resurrected Lord Jesus. I come to my final point, that if you've been with us on these Sunday nights, you're used to it. So what? What's the difference if Jesus really rose from the dead or not? 
Supposing we can present all this evidence and somebody says, okay, he rose. You win. I believe it. So what? What's the difference if Christ really rose from the dead or not? Remember what I said at the outset? Christianity rises or falls on the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's of first importance in a Christian's belief? What's of first importance? Where do I find that answer? I find that answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're turning to this in your Bibles or your uh, tablets or phones, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, great, great verses. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. That's the good news about Jesus, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you believed in vain what I've taught you, you're in a whole lot of trouble, but you can stand in that because it's not in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Please underscore that at least in your mind. I delivered to you as of first importance. What is most important? He says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what? Well, this is a big answer to that, so what? Because this is of first importance to a believer, that Jesus died, that he was raised from the dead. First importance. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 gives us another answer to the so what question. The resurrection was a declaration that Jesus was the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is it important? Yes, it is important. It's the declaration that Jesus was God himself. John chapter 20 gives us another answer to the so what question. This is after John's chapter detailing the resurrection. He comes to the end of that chapter and he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Is it important? So what? Yes, it's important because that's where we get eternal life. We get life in Jesus' name. Jesus, the resurrected Savior. In Acts chapter 17, this is kind of the other side of the coin. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is God's assurance that there will be judgment. And he assured us of that by raising Christ from the dead as well. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, if we say, so what? What if there was, was not a resurrection? What difference does it make? The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is a resurrection chapter. These three verses are very significant. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. 
We're all sitting here, except me, I'm standing. A couple of us are standing with unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. Then these also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What it says, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, there's nothing left for us except pity. Nothing left because our faith is futile, our faith is vain. It's no good whatsoever. The cross is a hoax. The resurrection is a hoax. If there's no resurrection, there's no Savior. And we should be in mourning instead of in celebration. But isn't it nice we come together every Sunday and we celebrate? We celebrate because we've got something to celebrate about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that all of culture changed when Jesus was shown to be raised from the dead. Sunday worship changed. Hope emerged. Those who were terrified of the enemy became fearless advocates of a risen Savior. The evidence is preponderant for us. Thank you for that. And thank you that we're able to sing about that. We're able to sing about a Savior who's alive. We're able to celebrate. We don't have to hang our heads and wonder, why are we here? What is our purpose? Where is any hope? Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that in his name. Amen.